This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi. Welcome, everybody, to Knock Knock I with Dr. Glockenflecken. That's me. Uh, this is your weekly stop for all things eyeballs. In case you're like on your commute or some, you're just hanging around, you know, at home and you're like, yeah, I'd really love to learn something about eyes right now. I got you. That's what I'm here for. It's, I don't know why you'd want to do that. That's. Some people just like to learn that my, my wife's like Kristen's like this. She's she just likes she likes learning like in her free time. She wants to learn something in my free time. I want to turn my brain off and just I'll, I'll I, sometimes I'm happy just kind of staring off into space. I don't know. Putty style from Steinfeld. It, it's a, a it's just difference. You know, some people just want to learn some eyeball stuff whenever they have some free time. I got you. I'm here for you. All right. So, so we got a very exciting case. We're talking. It's a neuro ophthalmology case. Uh, so let me just uh, say a couple things about neuro ophthalmologists. So I love neuro ophthalmologists. Neuro ophthalmology is a subspecialty within ophthalmology. So you do residency and you do a one year fellowship in neuro ophthalmology, uh, and it's a challenging specialty because you're combining two big things, right? Ophthalmology and neurology. There's so much overlap between the two and the diseases are often complex. They take a lot of thought. They take a lot of workup. They take a lot of time and energy. And so you have this field dedicated to it. Uh, and every ophthalmologist wishes they had a neuro ophthalmologist like sitting right next to them at all times. I would love that. I'm a comprehensive ophthalmologist, right? So I did residency and was done. I was like, no, no more. Do not subject me to any more medical training. I would love to start paying back my loans. You got to start eventually. Might as well do it now and not do more training. And then what I did is just surround myself with people who are much smarter than me, who are all these subspecialists. Um, and we do it. There is a neuro, uh, several neuro-ophthalmologists at the big academic center in Portland. And, and so the problem is that Neuro-ophthalmologists are hard to find. There's not that many of them. I think there's like six. No, I'm just kidding. There's, there's more than six, but generally there's just not enough. Like they're hard to get patients into because there's so much demand for their time. Uh, and so I encourage everybody out there who's going ophthalmology, hey, maybe consider doing neuro-ophthalmology. Uh, I say that totally selfishly because I have patients to send you. I have people that could use a neuro-ophthalmologist. It's hard to get in to see you guys. 
but um and that's everywhere that's not just where i live it that's like it's it's hard to find them anywhere because they're not generally in private practice some of them are most of them are in academic centers and there's just not as many of them out there so shout out to neuro ophthalmologists thank you for doing what you do because the brain is scary there's a lot we don't get about that thing. And uh, and so we need people like you to bridge the gap between eyeballs or brain bubbles, as they're uh, affectionately termed. No one calls them that. I don't know why I even said that. Um, and the brain, uh, because uh, neuro-ophthalmologists, they are. They're, they're half-ophthalmologists, half-neurologists. Maybe I need a character. Maybe I need a neuro-ophthalmologist character. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good idea. I'll think on that one. Anyway, um, so shout out to neuro ophthalmologists. Uh, and, and the other thing I want to mention before we get into our case, our neuro ophthalmology case, is just talking about seeing the back of the eyeball. Now, that's a, it's a skill. It's a physical exam skill, just like uh, uh, listening to the heart and lungs, uh, palpating the liver, doing a rectal exam. Seeing the back of the eye and all the structures back there, the retina, the optic nerve, that's also a part of the eye exam. That's, I'm sorry, that's part of the general physical exam. But if you tell a med student, hey, can you go do a fundus exam? By the way, when I say fundus, I mean the eye fundus, not the um, stomach fundus or the um, uterus fundus, the fundus of the uterus. Uh, that's uh, very different things. It's interesting how much overlap there is in terminology between uh, somewhat disparate fields like ophthalmology and OBGYN. Dilation's another one. Anyway, we don't have contractions in ophthalmology, though. At least not really. We have muscles, but anyway, I'm getting on off track here. So if you tell a med student to go look at the fundus, that, 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 that request will strike fear in the heart of pretty much anybody in medicine outside of ophthalmology. We just don't in in med school in in, in internship and we just we just don't get a lot of practice doing it because it's hard to do. You have to have special lenses and or use a special ophthalmoscope and it just it's not a great view and oftentimes the eyes are not dilated. So it's just hard, very hard to learn unless you're dedicating yourself to learning it, which is what we do in ophthalmology residency. So I didn't feel comfortable looking at the back of the eye, looking at the optic nerve, looking at the retina, really until my first year in resident, my PGY2 year. I was already like committed to ophthalmology before I really like knew what I was doing <laughs> and looking at the back of the eye because it's hard to do. I had to examine 40 patients, that's 80 eyeballs or probably more like 76 because there's going to be a handful that only have one eye, but you get what I mean. A lot of eyeballs, all dilated, by the way, so the pupil's bigger, which is going to help you see back there a lot easier. I had to examine that many eyeballs every day for weeks before I really felt comfortable looking back there and examining parts of the eye. Now, this is important because there's a lot of diagnoses out there. A lot of a lot of things that people get treated for that uh, you know it's helpful to be able to look in the back of the eye. So often ophthalmologists will get consulted, essentially just to look back there, because no one else knows how to do it. And and you can't blame people for doing this. Like you can't blame people for saying, "Hey, this patient has diabetes. Can you do a dilated eye exam?" You could. It's easy to say, "Oh, why don't you just do it? It's easy. Just look back there. It's a it's a physical exam thing." But Remember, I had to examine 
80 eyeballs a day for weeks to be able to do it. So how can we expect a non-ophthalmologist to be able to look back there consistently? You can't. And so that's why like no ophthalmologist really should ever give you grief for consulting us essentially just to look at back at the, at the back of the eye, whether it's uh, to look for optic nerve swelling, which is what we're going to be talking about today, or looking at the retina to find a, a, a diabetes findings. Uh, any number of things you could look back there for. Um, uh, flashes and floaters, looking for retinal tears, retinal detachments. We know how to look back there and nobody else does. And that's not going to change, by the way. The only thing that, that I, I, in the future, I hope this becomes a reality is that we have fundus cameras in every hospital, in every emergency department. The technology, we already have the technology. Like we, ha we have things that can, even through a non-dilated pupil, we have technology where you can take a big picture of all of the retina back there. But it's, it's not common. It's expensive still. And so you're not going to have that just in general medical offices or emergency departments or hospitals. Uh, I think that's ultimately where it goes because it would be great for for you know emergency physicians to be able to like sit a patient in front of a camera, take a big picture, be like, oh no, the retina looks fine. There's no retinal detachment there. That would that would help. That would help. I think it'd be great. Until that day comes, though, us ophthalmologists will be looking back there for you. That's all we can do. All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with our case of the day. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, our case today involves a 31-year-old female who presents to her eye doctor with a history of headaches and vision blackouts. So when asking about her vision blackout, she says that when she changes position, uh, going from like sitting to standing or laying down to sitting, sometimes she'll get like a, a real quick little blackout. It lasts one to two seconds. The vision just blacks out and then comes right back. Doesn't feel lightheaded, doesn't pass out, just blackouts. And the headache she describes is kind of this like tight band just around the head. It's there kind of all the time, comes and goes uh, a little bit, but it's mostly just always there. It's really frustrating. It's been there for like six months. What's going on? So immediately when I hear this story, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking mm, this could be maybe increased pressure around the brain. All right. Uh, and so I ask a couple other questions and she says that she has um, also ringing in her ears. Uh, so this uh, sound almost like a, a ringing or a whooshing sound with her heartbeat. like, And so this presentation, I'm hearing this, I'm thinking this is most likely going to be idiopathic intracranial hypertension. That's the topic for today. Um, but we're not ready to label her with that diagnosis yet because idiopathic intracranial hypertension is a diagnosis of exclusion. What that means is we have to make sure that there's not other things causing her symptomatology before we label it as IIH. But that's what I'm thinking. That's where I'm going in my brain, all right, when I'm seeing this patient. So I examine the patient expecting to see swollen optic nerves, which is exactly what I find. So I look back there, both optic nerves are swollen, but the patient is still seeing well, like 20, 20, 20, 25 vision. 
And so I'm thinking most likely IIH, but we got to make sure it's not something else causing increased pressure around the brain. Things like tumors, things like blood clots, things like inflammatory conditions, uh, white matter lesions. There's, there's a lot of things. Uh, the list is so long. We're not going to go through all of them. There's a long list of things that can cause increased pressure around the brain. So the first thing I'm going to do is send that patient to go get um, imaging done. All right. So we need to get an MRI and an MRV. So we got to look at the soft tissue of the brain, but also the, the, the veins around the brain, because that's where there could be a blood clot that causes this problem. As far as the urgency of this, it kind of depends on the clinical situation. If the patient has intractable headaches uh, and the vision is, is, has been affected, like there's vision loss, the patient's not seeing well in either eye, I'd be inclined to send that patient directly over to the emergency department right then and there for imaging, for an MRI, if they can get it, some kind of imaging of the brain. If the patient's function is doing okay, like still 2020, like in this case, 2020, headaches are bothersome, but you know, she lived with it for about six months, so she's doing okay, uh, then I'd, I'd be okay scheduling that, you know, urgently within the next couple of weeks, you know, getting some imaging done. And so the imaging comes back on this patient clean. That's great. That's what we want. We want, we want, we don't want to have to deal with it. And the patient doesn't want that either. It doesn't, obviously we don't want like some kind of cancer or tumor or something. Uh, and so imaging looks, looks fine, but the imaging did show signs and there are other signs out there. Like it's called empty cella or a, a, a narrowing of the transverse process in the in the brain. Anyway, there's MRI findings that can suggest increased intracranial pressure. So we do see that, but no tumor, no big acute abnormality. So what's the next step? Well, I'm still not ready to label this IIH, idiopathic intracranial hypertension, because we're not done with our workup. Next, the patient needs to get a lumbar puncture. So we actually have to tap into the cerebral spinal fluid and measure the pressure. So that's a direct measurement of how much pressure there is around the brain. Also, we need to send that cerebrospinal fluid off for studies to make sure there's no infection, that there's no leukemia, lymphoma, some, any kind of anything else that could cause increased pressure. So coordinate that through the PCP or through a neurologist or something, because I, do, I don't do lumbar punctures. That's a little bit far, far away from the eye for me. Uh, I, I try not to puncture anything. Sometimes I'll puncture the eye, but th that's in a controlled situation. Definitely not the lumbar. I don't lumbar puncture. So we get that done and the pressure is uh, 35, which 35 centimeters of water, which is, uh, I would I'd consider like 20 to 25, like the upper limit of normal. Like if it's above that, then there's definitely increased pressure around the brain. But all the studies came back normal. So now I am comfortable saying to this woman, we, you have uh, idiopathic intracranial hypertension. We don't totally know why, that's the idiopathic part. We don't totally know why you have increased pressure but you do. And that's what's causing your symptoms. And this case in particular is classic for idiopathic intracranial hypertension. We have a young woman, typically the third decade of life. So thirties to forties is typically when we see this. It's most commonly in women, also women who are overweight, women with obesity. And so, um, you know, for like this patient, if she had said, oh, I've you know, gained, you know, 50 pounds within the past year, uh, that's a risk factor for developing IIH. Um, and, uh, we see this less commonly, much less commonly in males and in, um, um, in children. So obviously uh, it does happen, but it's, it's much, much less likely. 
if you see this same symptomatology in a man, then you would uh, be much more worried about some of these other potential causes like tumor or infection or something, encephalitis, something. So, um, so we have our diagnosis. And as far as the symptoms of IIH, of increased intracranial hypertension, uh, she mentioned having vision blackouts. These are called transient visual obscurations. And it's, it's, it's actually a very specific symptom for um, ha, uh, uh, swollen optic nerves, where you get, with, with position changes, you get little transient blackouts of your vision. And then also um, pulse synchronous tinnitus is that whooshing sound she was hearing. So all of this clues you in to increase pressure around the brain. So we have our diagnosis. Now, what do we do about it? So the baseline treatment for, um, for IIH is going to be um, really the, the first thing, with, and, and I say easiest, and like there's less like medical intervention involved here, but weight loss and sodium restriction. So it, similar to treating high blood pressure, that's the way you can treat high blood pressure. So it, we've, you know, studies have shown that if you decrease weight by about 5%, um, then that can actually make a big difference in symptomatology. It can decrease the headaches. It can decrease that whooshing sound in your ears. Um, it, can, it can help with the blackouts. It can decrease the amount of, of swelling that you have. We don't really know the mechanism why that's the case, but, um, but we do know that it helps. So we always, you know, do occasionally I do, uh, weight counseling with patients. That's always hard. And, um, um, and, and it's, I have seen it be successful for people, you know, they you know, lose even like 10 pounds can sometimes that alone can make a big difference in this disease. And so, uh, but if, if there's more pronounced vision loss, like maybe the patient, you know, before ha started having these symptoms, they were 20, 20, now they're down to like 20, 40. Um, or there's really severe um, uh, optic disc edema or intractable headaches where they're, they're severe, patient can't even function. Then we got to start uh, uh, thinking about, about medication management. So the, the first step beyond just weight loss, sodium restriction would be um, uh, starting a diuretic. We commonly will use acetazolamide. What acetazolamide does, it, 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 well, it causes you to pee, but it also uh, can, uh, can decrease the pressure on the optic nerves in the eye and cause, um, um, uh, and just help relieve all those symptoms, the headaches, everything. So acetazolamide, as long as the patient has decently functioning kidneys, I'm putting on my nephrology cap now. Gotta watch out for those kidneys. Um, so that's, that's, that's what we typically start with. And we'll start with the, you know, dose like 500 milligrams twice a day or something. And you can build up that means I've, I've seen patients on grams of Diamox to help control these headaches. So that's medical management, but then it goes even one step further. If you can't get symptoms under control with, with medical man, with, with pills, with Diamox, then you have to think surgical. And so intractable headaches, debilitating headaches sustained and progressive vision loss. And the, rate, the way we monitor vision loss in these cases is we have patients do a, a, um, a visual field test, right? So check your peripheral vision. And so if, if that's declining, if just the function is declining or the, we can't get a, control the headaches, then we will refer patients over to a, um, uh, a neurosurgeon to consider putting a shunt in. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you like the the exact mechanism for how these shunts work. Um, there's like lumboperitoneal shunts where you basically put like a connection between the cerebrospinal fluid and the lumbar spine and have it just empty into your abdomen. I think that's how that works. Basically, the whole idea is giving the cerebrospinal fluid a different place to leave so that it doesn't build up in that space and put pressure on the brain, right? So that's that's a shunt. Uh, there's a common um, uh, 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 joke made in that I, I make a lot. And when I make fun of neurosurgeons, as it's like, it's always the shunt or it's never the shunt. It's never the shunt's fault. It's never the shunt's fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's not the shunt. Usually it's anesthesia, but it's never the shunt. Um, I made a joke like that at a, at a, neuro, a neurosurgery conference and it killed. They love it. They love the shunt jokes, even though they've heard a lot of them, but they still like it. So there's shunts uh, and another uh, uh, less commonly used surgical intervention is called an optic nerve sheath fenestration. Yeah, that's an interesting thing where you actually create a little opening in the, the sheath, the outer layer of the optic nerve to allow for fluid, cerebrospinal fluid to exit right there. That's very risky. Typically, that's reserved for patients who don't really have a lot of headache symptoms, but for whatever reason, because of high pressure around the brain, they're rapidly losing vision. Then you can do that very specialized. It's like a shunt, but on the optic nerve, which is scary, very scary. I've seen that done once and more power to the surgeons that do that kind of work because my God, that is, that is terrifying, but they're very good at it. Uh, what else do I want to tell you about this? Oh, 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 th this actually, in, in this uh, uh, topic, um, as far as different causes of this disease, IIH, um, uh, this ties into the don't do that eyeball tip of the week. This is uh, geared more toward medical professionals. The don't do that eyeball tip of the week is don't forget to ask about medications because there are a number of medications that are associated with, with causing IIH to occur. All right. So the biggest one is uh, one of the biggest ones is oral contraceptives. So I've seen this number of like young women come on, they're 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 taking exogenous steroids, the progesterone, estrogen, some combination of the two, and their oral contraceptives, causing them to develop this increased pressure around the brain. We stop the medication and their symptoms slowly resolve and go away. I, I have a couple patients like that. And so don't and you can find a list of the commonly uh, uh, commonly used medications that can cause increased intracranial pressure, but oral contraceptives is one of them. Uh, uh, using um, some anti-inflammatory drugs, thyroid replacement can do it. Um, uh, some lupus uh, medications that are used in lupus. There's a number of things, so uh, I'm not going to go over all of them because I don't know. I, that's one of those things I have to look up every time I think about it. Like, you know, it's okay to look stuff up, you guys. Like, even doctors look things up. Like, you can't remember everything, and so yeah, we got to look things up from time to time. All right, how about your ophthalmo ophthalmology fun fact? Here's your ophthalmology fun fact of the week: Your optic nerve actually represents a physiologic blind spot. Did you know that we all have a blind spot in our vision? Those of us with glaucoma have bigger blind spots, but you have one that you're born with, and that's exactly where the optic nerve enters your eyeball. So an anatomy, God, I still, I keep saying, people keep telling me, get an eyeball model. Why don't I have one yet? I don't know. Someone just needs to send me one and force me to use it. I don't know. But um, 
the optic nerve extends from the back of your eye to your brain. Well, the point where it enters the eye, there's no photoreceptors right there. So it's going to be a physiologic blind spot. And there's ways you can try to find it. It's like, it's not straight ahead. If you're looking straight ahead with your eye and a little bit off laterally, like if it's my right eye and this, it's the blind spot's going to be just a tiny bit off to the right in my right eye. I'm looking straight ahead. There's ways you can like figure out like how to find that blind spot. But anyway, we all have one. We all have a blind spot. It's where your optic nerve enters your eye. That's your blind spot because you don't have any photoreceptors. So you're not going to sense any light. You're not going to be able to form an image in that one spot. But it's very hard to find. It's not obviously there. All right. And finally, um, we have uh, a question from a Glockham Fleck. So I had a, a good uh, a recommendation from one of the listeners. I said, well, if you have a question from a, a, a one of you, like one of the people listening, it should be called a question from a Glockham flock or question from the Glock flock. Uh, and then if it's one of my kids, we could say question from a Glockham fleck. Or some people have recommended flecklings. That's a little harder to say. I like it. I like it though. Fleckling. Uh, fleckling. No, question from a Glockham fleck. I'll, I'll just go with that for now. So here is a question from a Glockham fleck. What are the eyelashes for? Oh, great question. Thank you. And that was my wonderful little eight-year-old. What are the eyelashes for? Some of you may know this. The eyelashes um, are primarily for uh, keeping stuff out of your eyes. You know, it's like, you know, it's it's our our evolutionary thing where, you know, when we were hunters and gatherers and, and going through brush and it would just like act as something that keeps stuff from getting in your eyes, bugs and dirt and stuff. Um, that can harm your eyes or or decrease your vision or something. So it's just like, it's like a protective mechanism. It just sweeps things out away from your eyes. Do we still need them? I mean, not as much, I guess, based on the fact that we're no longer hunter-gatherers. But um, uh, they are still helpful. And uh, 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 people like people, uh, I mean, people put fake eyelashes on because they like them so much. So uh, they are um, still helpful for that purpose, but maybe not to the same extent that they used to be evolutionarily. So anyway, good question. What are eyelashes for? They are to protect your eyes. Thank you for that. And thank you all for listening. That's our episode for today. Uh, I, I think I did good this time. I, we, this is like only about 25 minutes. Uh, I, I, I didn't know how I'd be able to do such a big topic. I left a lot out with IIH, I, 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 but I just didn't want to get like too grand, too into the weeds um, but, uh, I feel like that was a pretty nice overview for people diagnosis. What are the, what are the big takeaways? Let's, maybe I should start wrapping this up with a little summary. So big takeaways is, uh, um, it's a IIH is a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to do a workup to make sure you take away, you rule out any other potential cause of increased pressure around the brain, um, treatment, um, uh, Diet or weight loss uh, is is always helpful for this, but if that's not possible, then uh, cetazolamide. Sometimes surgical options are needed, and um, and people live with this for a long time. And and as long as the biggest thing is making sure the vision function is okay, got to make sure the vision's okay, so that we'll see keep seeing these patients periodically throughout over the years. Uh, just making sure checking their visual field, checking their visual acuity. And, um, and so it's a, it's a disease that can go away. People can kind of outgrow it over time, especially with treatment. And, uh, and so it doesn't have to be a debilitating disease. Sometimes it can be. 
that's why we have those surgical options. But anyway, uh, let me know in the comments if you have any follow-up questions about this episode or if you have any suggestions for future episodes. I'm always happy to hear those. I am your host, Will Flannery, also known as Dr. Glockenflecken. Thanks to um, our executive producers, uh, Aaron Corney, Rob Goldman, and Shanti Brooke. And editor-engineer Jason Pertizza. Our music is by Omer Benzvi. Knock Knock High is a human content production. Thank you, everybody. See you next time.